Good morning again. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have at least one uh, customer card for some place that you shop? Not a credit card, but one of those customer cards where they kind of track your spending and stuff, like a Kroger card or whatever. How many of you have at least one? How many of you have at least three? How many of you have more than five? All right. How many of you, like me, are getting annoyed now when you're asked? Uh, when you, okay, all right. That, that it's become so popular that I'm uh, starting to get a little annoyed. And I have customer cards, and maybe you're this way too. I have no idea what the customer card does. Like my Eddie Bauer card, I have absolutely, yes, I do shop at Eddie Bauer, all right? Um, no, I have no idea what that card does. I use it for my purchases. I hand it to them every time, but I don't really get any rewards. I don't really get any deals. I, I don't know what it does. And then I have customer cards that are awesome. So like at a recent trip to Kroger gas station, I just got a dollar off my gas, a dollar a gallon uh, off, off my gas, which was awesome. The next movie theater, I go at an AMC. Uh, I'm getting $5 off my experience at AMC. Uh, I like those types of rewards, and it's nice to be rewarded, but that's not really the point of the customer card. Uh, the point of the customer card is to track your spending uh, and to track my spending so that they can know what products people like, what products they should be moving in, what products people are most uh, leaning toward. And the reason they do this, because they didn't used to do it this way. You know how they used to decide what products to bring in and, and what products would be popular? Uh, they, they used to just listen to their customers uh, of what people thought that they wanted and they'd make adjustments uh, accordingly, and then they had some major, major flops. The best example of this I can give you is McDonald's. That for years and years, McDonald's was being told by their customers that if you bring in a healthy hamburger, we will buy it and we will eat it. All right, their customers were overwhelming, overwhelmingly saying this. Bring in a healthy option for us and, and, and we'll eat it. So McDonald's developed a hamburger called the McLean. Do you remember the McLean? If you do, you got a real good memory because it didn't last very long because nobody bought it. Right? People said that they wanted a healthier option, but when it came, uh, when, when it came to actually ordering, they said, I'll take a number one supersize with a big bucket of melted ice cream on the side, as Jim Gaffigan says. But, and so years ago, people, they, uh, companies realized that you can't just ask people kind of what they want. You have to gauge what they're actually spending their money on. And so they developed these kind of customer tracking devices. Amazon's awesome at this, right? I, I wish a lot of people in my life knew me as well as Amazon knows me. Right, right. Amazon knows me so well, right? And they send me all of these deals. It's, it's, it's amazing. But they have tracked my spending on Amazon, and they send me deals accordingly. Netflix is getting really good at this, right? When you look at Netflix suggestions, you know, often they've tracked your watching, uh, and they personalize things uh, for, for each individual. Uh, this is how the Internet, how social media in general works, that if you do, like, a search uh, for... Uh, a new car or you do a search for a new product. Have you ever noticed that all of a sudden on your Facebook feed, you'll start to see advertisements for that uh, again and again and again. They're tracking you. They're watching you. Now, I'll tell you what freaks me out. What freaks me out is when Cheryl and I have had a conversation about buying something new and we haven't done any Internet searches and it pops up on my Facebook feed. That freaks me out. Right? Because I feel like they're listening in. Now, uh, Cheryl's sister does this for a living. She does uh, these kind of Facebook advertisements and things like that for a living. And she swears to me there is no way they can listen on those conversations. Because I've asked her. About, only Cheryl and I talked about this. And all of a sudden it's on my Facebook feed. What's up with that? She said, that's not me. 
Uh, I don't listen in on people's conversations. So we live in this over-personalized world where everything is, is personalized to us and for us. And I think it's easy for that to ultimately uh, translate to our faith. I think it's easy for us to begin to think about faith that way, that faith is by and large a personal thing to me. And we can personalize our faith, and we, we try to do that all the time. But I want to take us back to a minute to our Generation Series uh, that, that we did a couple series ago. And in that series, we talked about the baby boomer contribution. And how one of the things uh, that, that the baby boomers did was they introduced to the world this idea of a personal relationship with God. And over the last multiple decades, there has been just a huge amount of Christian music and Christian books and Christian media. It's just exploded, and it's easy to personalize it. If you like Christian rock, there's a Christian rock band for you. If you like Christian country, I'm praying for you. Um, if you... <laughs> You can listen to that, right? If you like uh, Christian R&B, there's that Christian rap. All of this stuff is available. If you uh, want a Christian book on a certain topic, you can go out and find it uh, in droves and droves. It is is easy to personalize our faith and to make it almost only our personal relationship with Jesus. And I think the pendulum uh, has swung a little far in that direction. Because while faith is a very personal thing, and don't mishear me today at all, faith is a very personal thing. In our culture, it has become predominantly and almost only a personal thing. Here's what I mean by that. I think our culture has lost our love and our value of the church, of the community that we are called to be a part of, because we view faith almost totally as a personal thing. And so church is not considered a high value, even within the Christian community. Uh, And I can kind of back this up with statistics. I know that uh, statistics would tell us that the average person in America, when it comes to being regularly active in their church environment, for the average family in America right now, it's about one and a half times a month. Um, one and a half times a month of, of being in church. We, we just don't do that on a regular basis anymore. And you'll hear statements like this sometimes, that I love Jesus, I can't stand his church, I don't need the church to be a Christian, my relationship is between Jesus and me, I don't need anybody else, I don't need the church, I don't need the community. And here's my question, is that true? Is that true? Uh, Barry Cameron, uh, he's a pastor in, in Texas. He was trying to answer this question. He wrote uh, what turned out to be a very controversial blog on the subject of how important and valuable the church is. And uh, he, it ended up being a very, very controversial blog. But I wanted to, to share with you a piece of it because he says it better than I, I think I could ever say it. And I want to I read this to you. It's a little bit long for a quote. Uh, but I want to share it with you, and then we'll move on with the sermon. He says, There are a number of metaphors and analogies used in the Bible for the church, none of which support or encourage any kind of Christian life apart from the church. So, for example, he says, Peter refers to the church as a holy nation, identifying believers' common citizenship in the heavenly realm. In Revelation, the church is referred to as a kingdom, which speaks of our common submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, Peter refers to the church as a holy priesthood, describing our common uh, service and our common acts, uh, and our uncommon access to Almighty God. Jesus referred to the church as a vine, which speaks to our common connection to the life of God and how we bear fruit. Paul called the church a temple, referring to us being a building 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, while Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The church is compared to a body, emphasizing our connection to one another and our dependence upon each other uh, for life, with our ultimate dependence on uh, our head, uh, uh, on our head to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is called an assembly, focusing on our common gathering to be gathered in the eternal presence of God. And Peter calls the church a flock, pinpointing our common need to be led, fed, and cared for and protected by the great shepherd. The final metaphor used for a church uh, in the Bible, and you'll find this because you're a part of Northwest, you'll find this very uh, easy to understand, is family. This speaks to intimacy, interaction, and dependency and loyalty and mutual care, relationship and love that can only take place in a family. Now here's, here's what he says in, to sum all that up. The fact is there is no biblical precedent, encouragement, or support of any, uh, of any kind for any type of Christianity that would somehow exist apart from the local church. None, zip, nada, zero. And Barry Cameron went on to say more controversial things than that. But um, I, I wanted to share that with you. He, he, he is making the argument of how important the church is. Now listen, uh, if you've been at Northwest for any period of time, you know my personal story. You know that I grew up in the church, and uh, I grew up uh, going to church every single week. If the doors were open, we were in church. If I was sick, I needed to produce something internally to get out of going to church. Right? And, and we, we just were in church every time the doors uh, were open. And that church meant so much to me in my spiritual growth. It really did. I'm still Facebook friends with a ton of people from that church. Uh, they kind of helped shape me and teach me the biblical stories. I love that church. But that church had issues. And those issues came to a head in my senior year of high school. Uh, there was a secret sin in the church that was kind of ignored and kept secret for a long time. It ended up imploding that church and eventually exploding uh, right when my family needed the church the most. It was the year my mom had passed away, and our church just exploded uh, in, in a way that you can't even uh, imagine. And it was incredibly painful. It was incredibly painful. Uh, and there was a while where I was questioning my calling uh, to even go into the ministry anymore. I'm like, I don't know if I even want to give my life to this thing called the church. And God used another church, and God used the, the people of that church to restore my passion for the local church. So listen, here's what I want to say to you. If you've been hurt by the church, me too. Me too. But the church is, is central to God's plan for, for the world. And I'll tell you, one of my prayers for Northwest I pray that we would reach people far from God and that people would come to salvation here. But another one of my goals here is that we would be a place of healing for people that have been hurt. Because there have been a lot of people throughout history that have been hurt by the church. And I want our church and I want our preaching and the way that we do things, I want it to be a place of healing for people that are hurt. So if you're, you're here today and you've been hurt by the church, I just want to say welcome to you. Uh, welcome, and, and we hope that this is a place of healing for you for however long you're on the journey with us. I hope that this is a place of healing because I know people have been hurt by the church. And through that other church, listen, I love the church. I do. I've dedicated my life to helping the church. I think it's important for every single Christian, every Christian, to be active and involved and serving in their local church. And listen, I didn't just come up with this from my personal life. That, that, that was kind of my journey that I got active and involved after I was hurt by the church. It's not just true from that. I came up with this from God's word. And so I want to spend some time with you um, uh, just exalting the church for a little bit. 
I want to look at some scriptures that highlight the importance and the value of the church. And I just want to spend some time doing that because I don't think faith is just personal. I really don't. I think we are designed to be a part of a community, to be a part of, of, of a body. And I want to show you that in God's word. And the other reason I want to do this, um, I talked about this on Facebook this week. The internet is full of these articles. You, you've probably noticed them as well of seven reasons you should leave your church, five reasons your church is dropping the ball, four reasons your church is, you know, a bunch of idiots, stuff like that. The church is full of that. And can I just be honest with you? I'm kind of getting a little bit tired of it. <laughs> Because I think Jesus loves the church. I think he loves the church. And I, I want to see the church encouraged and, and lifted up and, and made better. Do, do churches struggle? Do churches do things the way, in a way that they shouldn't do things? Absolutely. We, at the end of the day, are full of human beings. And that makes us imperfect. imperfect. But the church is God's plan. So let me show you a couple of scriptures here. Uh, I've entitled this sermon, Five Reasons You Should Love Your Church. All right, five reasons you should love your church, all right? So let's, let's read some of these scriptures together. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God, uh, in which God lives by his spirit. So I, right? so I talked about this earlier this week, but the church in the New Testament is repeatedly referred to as a home, right? Not in this, just this passage, but in many others. And it is, it is designed to be a home that is built on the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So in order for a church to work well, it must be built on that cornerstone. It must be built on the teachings of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, the exaltment of Jesus. It must be wholly committed to following him. Right? And so when a church is built on, on the chief cornerstone of Jesus, it is made strong. As a matter of fact, Jesus told a story one time uh, at, at the end of his uh, most lengthy sermon that he gave, the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of that, he says, man, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He, he built his house on the chief cornerstone. He built it on the rock and the winds came and the storms blew and the wind beat against that house. But it stood strong because it had its foundation on the rock as a church jesus is our cornerstone he needs to be our cornerstone and when he's our cornerstone we are strong we are a strong church when he is our cornerstone i go to conferences and uh church gatherings all the time and i'll hear lots of ideas on how to grow your church and make it better and improve it and i like going to those conferences but listen a new idea is not what makes a church strong Jesus is what makes a church strong. So I want to invite you to join me. Let's be sure that we are lifting Jesus up. He is our chief cornerstone, that we are worshiping him. We are honoring him. We are obeying him. We are following him, that he is what we are all about. And he will make Northwest a strong house. He will do that. We don't need a new snappy idea, right? Purpose-driven, whatever, right? We need our purpose to be Jesus Christ. And so through Jesus, we become this strong house. And here's what this passage teaches, that then that strong house becomes a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. So here's what we learn in this passage, that when uh, that the Spirit speaks, when the church gathers. 
And don't hear me say that, that I'm just talking about this gathering time. I'm talking about any time. The Bible's really clear on this. Any time that Christians gather, which ultimately the church is the people, but the Spirit speaks when the church gathers. Now, it's not the only time the Spirit speaks, right? He doesn't just speak in here. Uh, but the Bible's clear on this. When, when we gather, he speaks. He, he speaks in a lot of places. But I believe someone that really wants to hear from God, gathering together with other Christians, gathering together with their church family, is a really important thing to do. And I could give you many examples of this. I, I've shared th- this example before. But it happens on a regular basis that I will leave church, and I'll stand out in the hallway greeting people, and somebody will come up to, say, to me and say, Man, when, when you said fill in the blank... I just thought it really challenged me. It really motivated me. It really, it really changed me. And I'll start to think about it. I was like, I don't think I said that. And so I'll go back and I'll look at my notes. And sure enough, my notes, I didn't say what they said that I said. And then I'll go back and say, I'm just curious about this. I'll go back and listen to the message. And in the message, I can't find any example where, where I said what they said. I didn't say it. Who did? The Spirit said it. The Spirit said it. The Spirit impressed that truth in their heart and in their mind. And I've said it before, man. Preaching should not work. Church should not work. That if you were to just kind of give somebody the, the, the idea that, so you're going to have a guy get up on a Sunday morning and he's going to give a 35 to 45-ish <clears throat> around about that message. Right? In this video day and age, in this high entertainment day and age, would that work? And in our humanness, we would say, no, absolutely, that would never work in a million years. But it works because of the Spirit. And you could go to, you could go to any church around the country today, right now, and receive. Because the Spirit speaks when the church gathers. The, the Spirit speaks. And so, th- this is just one thing that the church offers that a lot of other places in our world doesn't offer, that we, we believe that as we gather together as Christians, as we gather together as a church family, that we can hear from God and he can motivate us and encourage us and point us in the right direction. I think it's a really amazing thing. Let me show you another passage. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waters, blown here and there by every wave of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will, be, uh, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, the, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined together uh, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the church, when the church gathers, when Christians gather, the church is a place where we speak the truth to each other. This is another great thing that happens at church. It doesn't always feel great. It doesn't always feel great to have the truth spoken to you. But the church is a place where we speak the truth, and we speak the truth in love. And listen, we desperately need the truth. Uh, Way back when Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus, way back then they desperately needed the truth because there's this deceit that exists in our world, and we are told so many lies, it is easy to become deceived. Um, and we just we just need regular doses. I, I believe this for myself. I believe for you. I, be, I think this is an all play truth that we need regular doses of truth from God's word. Right? You don't need to know what I think of your situation. Who cares? Right? We, we need to know what God thinks of our situation, and we need to hear truth from His word because it is easy to become deceived. So I want to give an example of this that. Um, speaking of the truth not always being super pleasant to hear, this might 
I don't know, make somebody angry. I don't know. But um, I, I want to say it anyway, because I think this is an example of it, that our culture would say to you that um, it, the best thing to do before you were ever get married, the best thing to do would be to, to move in together uh, with your significant other. Uh, kick the relationship tires a little bit. You know, try it, try it out. Isn't that a flattering, you know, flattering description? But that, I've heard literally people say that. Kick the relationship tire. See if you're good together. You know, a study came out just last year saying that when a couple lives together before they get married, that they have a higher chance of divorce. It's a deception. And it's a deception that everybody just buys into. That, 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 that so many people are, are, are just moving in together and living together. And I think that that's just one example. I could have, I could have produced a hundred examples. Um, I, I, I wanted to share that one. But I think we just need to be constantly reminded of what is true. And we need to be reminded of it from God's word. And later in the chapter, Paul will give examples of what he thinks um, of some of the truths that we need to hear. Like uh, getting rid of all bitterness. right? Living a sexually pure life living an honest life, and most of the time, uh, you know when the first time you, he- the, the first time you learn that you're on the wrong path, heading in the wrong direction, the, the first time uh, that, that, that you, you figure that out is after somebody tells you. And so living a secluded life, living absent the body of Christ, is not a good idea. Uh, because you and I need people, we need uh, relationships where people can say to us, I, I don't think this ends well. I think you're heading in the wrong direction. I think uh, you might be a little bit deceived. And so we gather with Christians to hear the truth. This is why being in environments like this uh, are, are so important, to hear from God's word, to hear preaching from God's word, um, to, the truth, which is God's word. But it goes beyond that. It's being involved in other Bible studies, other relationships, other groups. It is so important because it's, we're so easily deceived. We can hear the truth from one another. All right, Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. What about you, he said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So there's a lot of things um, in this passage, but this is just one of those passages that Protestants and Catholics kind of disagree about. That many of my Catholic family and my Catholic friends believe uh, that the rock that Jesus is referring to in this passage is Peter, and that the church was built on Peter, that as a matter of fact, he was the first pope. Uh, when I interpret that passage, I believe the rock that Jesus is talking about is the great confession of Peter. And this is why this will just kind of inform why we do things the way we do at Northwest, that whenever anybody places their church membership or whenever anybody is baptized, we ask them to repeat the great confession that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because we believe that everything that we do should be built on Jesus, and everything that we do should be built on that great confession. Now, it's interesting, because Paul, when he describes the church, Paul uses home analogy, uh, family analogy, relationship analogy. Here, uh, you probably caught it, Jesus uses like battle language. Right? Um, and Jesus says the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome the church. And it's kind of hard to understand because of the translation. But he describes hell, I think this is interesting, he describes hell as having gates. 
the gates of hell. Uh, and, and you might know this, um, that gates are not a very good offensive tool. Unless you want to pick up a gate and, you know, whack somebody with it, right? A, a gate is not a very good offensive tool. Gates are by and large what? They're defensive. They're to keep people out, and sometimes they're used to keep people in. Sometimes you put up a gate to, to keep people trapped exactly where you want them to be. And so he describes, Jesus describes the church built on the great confession of Peter that the church uh, will overcome the gates of hell. So the church, Jesus says, is God's plan and is God's mission for, uh, is God's plan for achieving his mission. So notice what he says here, that the gates of hell are not going to be able to stop the forward progress, mission, and purpose of the church. And that's an amazing thing. Because sometimes I think we can feel like wrong is winning. And that evil is winning. And that, that Satan is winning. And that hell is winning. But Jesus says, no, the gates of hell will not be able to stop the forward progress, mission, and purpose of the church. So hell's gates are, are trying to keep people locked into hopelessness. I think hope is at an all-time low right now. But the church's mission of hope for all cannot be contained and it cannot be stopped. Hell's gates are trying to keep people locked into a sense of purposelessness. The mission of the church that God has created you and God has a plan for you and God has a purpose for you. Hell cannot stop that, that message. Hell's gates are trying to keep people locked into a message of despair. But the message of the church that you can have unexplainable peace, it cannot be stopped. And it cannot be stopped when it's all about Jesus. Because this is the same Jesus that rose in victory from the grave. He rose in victory from the grave, and he is living and active amongst us. He cannot be stopped. So we are, when we are built on the mission uh, and, and person of Jesus, we cannot be stopped either. All right? Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more, uh, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Are you discouraged? I know some of you are. Uh, I stand up here every week, and I know every week we have people that are coming in here limping and bruised and broken. And the fact of the matter is sometimes I get up here and I'm discouraged too. Right? This is an all play. Sometimes the Higgs family is discouraged. And I want you to know, one of my visions for this place is that we would be a place of encouragement for you. I want you to come in here limping. I don't want you to come in here limping and beating and bruised, but if you come in here limping and beating and bruised, I want you to leave with your head held high, ready to take on another week. I want you to be encouraged. And here's what I honestly believe. I said this a couple weeks ago. I really believe it. You are most encouraged when Jesus is lifted up. That something happens when we lift him up, that we are encouraged. When we say things like this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we remind ourselves that he is our source of strength and our greatest weakness. When we say things like the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you. When we say that all things work together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I think one of the reasons church is so important is I think we need regular doses of encouragement. Because sometimes we come in here and we're disheartened and we're discouraged and we've taken a gut punch the week before and we don't know what we're going to do and we don't know where we're going to turn. And sometimes it just helps to come into this room and hear, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. 
Sometimes it helps to come in here and say, man, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, he is at work in you. He hasn't forgotten you and he hasn't abandoned you. So sometimes it just helps to come in and receive some encouragement that comes when Jesus Christ is exalted and lifted high. Because when he is lifted the most high, I am the most encouraged. Last one. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the head is like a really important thing. I studied all week to make that statement. All right, Your, your head is a very important part of your body. Can you imagine having a body without a head? You can't. Because you wouldn't be here, right? But, but I, I remember, uh, I got a small taste of this at camp one year where, uh, they blindfolded, they blindfolded me and just took away my eyesight. Um, and it was a trust exercise. You were supposed to follow the voice of, of somebody. I hate trust exercises. Uh, I have major trust issues, right? Um, I just hate trust exercises. But listen, a body without a head obviously wouldn't work. And Jesus Christ is our head. And so the head commands. The head tells. The head controls everything when it comes to the body. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus designed it to work that way. That he would be in and over and before all things. That he is supreme and he is in control. And he designed that he would be the head over the body. This is how Jesus designed things. He is the head, how God designed things. He is the head and and we are the body. And he is the head over the body. That we would live out his commands. We would accomplish his mission. And that we would do it as a body. We would do it as a family. We would do it together in relationship with him as a community working together. So I want to ask you a question, uh, and this is going to sound a whole lot harsher than I mean it, but let me ask you this question. Who are we to say that Jesus was wrong? That, That he is the head and that he's going to work through the body, and instead we say, no, I'm a lone ranger. No, I don't need the church. No, I don't need those types of relationships. We're wrong. We're wrong. Anytime someone feels like they don't need the church and they don't need the body, Jesus is the head over the body. We need the body. He loves the body. He died for the body. We need the body. Let me give you some examples. Man, if I'm going to live out the peace of God that he has in store for me, I'm going to need you. And you're going to need me. I'm going to need people to tell me that I'm on a ledge of anxiety and help me walk away from it. Right? If I'm going to live out the peace of God, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need you praying for me. Sometimes I'm going to need to borrow your peace. Right? We had someone talking to us about a situation, and uh, they were saying, Steve, I really think everything's going to be okay. And, and I just I want to borrow their peace because I don't feel like it's going to be okay. And maybe you sometimes don't feel like it's going to be okay. But a Christ-following, loving person that says, I really think this is going to be okay. Let me borrow your peace. If we're going to have the peace of God, we need relationships. If I'm going to live out my Savior's command to love and serve others, which the two greatest commandments are love God and love people, if I'm going to live out the second half of that verse and love others, I'm going to need some others. This guy's brilliant, right? So I'm going to need some others. 
that when we live too secluded, there, there's about half the commands of the Bible that we can't even live out because we're not in relationships with, with other people. And a lot of those commands, yes, we are called to, to, to love those outside of the church. A lot of the commands of loving others have to do with within, within the church family and within the church body. So I need some others if I'm going to live out that command. If I'm going to live out uh, the command to, to share the good news of Jesus with my neighbors, to invite people to church, Man, I'm going to need people praying for me and encouraging me and helping me because there is little to me that is as scary as that. So we have a great head the body of the body, Jesus Christ. He is the greatest. He is the best. And his plan is that he would be the head over the body. And his plan is that we would be engaged with and love the local church. He works through the local church. I believe the local church that we carry with us the head, which is the hope of the world. So faith is personal. It really is. Uh, but you were created, and I was created for community. We are designed to be a part of a body. He loves his church. Jesus Christ loves his church, and we should too. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift called the church. And, um, Lord, sometimes, uh, and I, I know this and I resound with it, um, sometimes we are walking wounded and we're angry and we're bitter uh, at your church. Um, and I know that there are probably people in this room that feel this way. And uh, this sermon was probably very hard for them to hear. Um, I want to pray for healing for them. I know from personal experience that healing can come when you are angry and bitter at your church. Um, so I pray for healing. Um, I pray that you would use Northwest um, to, to help bring healing to people who may be feeling that way and struggling with that. I pray that we would be a haven for them. Uh, and that they feel loved and accepted, uh, and that they would find a different kind of church experience in our church. Um, help us to be the beautiful bride you created us to be. Help us to live the way you've called us to live. Help us to be a great community and family. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We stand. going to sing a song of invitation i'd love to i'd love to pray with you um, as we sing this song um, i'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the head of the church jesus christ exalting him up um, if you uh, want to learn more about what following him looks like we'd love to have a conversation with you about that as well as we sing this song